G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. It may be hard to believe that this actually happens in the 21st century, but in thousands of locations across parts of India, young girls are dedicated to a temple goddess and trapped in a life of ritualized sexual abuse. They suffer from HIV, AIDS, alcohol and substance abuse, poverty, depression and marginalization at every level. These girls are known as Jogini girls who come from the lowest caste in India, the Dalit people, who were used to be known as untouchables. So where is the hope for these girls and women? How do they get free from ritualized abuse apart from the fact that there are people like you and I who might take an interest in this and ways in which they might get free. Well, you may know that this Friday is International Women's Day. There'll be a focus on women all around the world. And these women are going to be the focus of our special guest today, Kate, who is the CEO of Dignity Freedom Network. Kate, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you very much, Neil. Nice to be on the show. Kate, not the first time we've talked through issues to do with the Jogini girls, but let's set a little bit of context here because uh, India is a different world to Australia. Things are not the same as the way we think. We've been raised with a different set of values and appreciation of uh, the value of women, but doesn't always happen right across the whole nation of India. Uh, give us a little insight as we set the scene for our conversation today. Things like caste system and uh, the different ways that uh, that Indians are shaped. What are your thoughts about setting that sort of foundation? Yes, you're absolutely right, Neil. There's a very, very different worldview in India than the one that we experience here in Australia. So in India, the caste system is prevalent and it kind of underpins the whole of society. It underpins all of life, really, and the whole worldview. So you're born into a caste, you live in your caste, you marry within your caste, you work within your caste and there's really no way of moving between castes. So there's four main castes and then underneath that there's another whole group of people that are considered actually to be outside the caste system. And these, as you mentioned, are called Dalits or they used to be known as untouchables. Okay, Dalit people, they're at the bottom of the food chain in one sense. When you talk about uh, castes, you've got those who are at the top, those who are at the bottom, Dalits are at the bottom and sometimes even outside of the caste system. And I, I guess you could say uh, there's the lowest caste and then there might be the lowest of the low, those who are even outside it. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And, and additionally, within any caste, the women are treated as or deemed to be of less value than the men. And so if you're a Dalit girl, a Dalit female, then you know basically from the time of birth that you're pretty much worthless because first of all, you're a Dalit and second of all, you're female. So it's um, just something that's quite indescribable. 
we see it as more complicated. Of course, it's the culture in India, and uh, people expect that those who are at the bottom of the caste system or outside of it will never be treated well. Uh, this is the case, isn't it, with these young women that we'll talk about today. There is no expectation that they'll ever be treated well or uh, succeed or raise above their lowly status. Uh, and, and that's the thing about the caste system. You know, you really can't move within the between the castes and you really are locked into whatever caste it is that you were born into. And, um, yeah, it's just something that we don't understand with our worldview that we have here in Australia, which is pretty much an egalitarian worldview where we consider that everybody's actually made in the image of God and that we're all equal in the eyes of God. I said in the introduction, Kate, that in the 21st century, it's hard to believe that any of this stuff still happens. It sounds like some sort of a plot from a movie, but this is the reality for young girls who are dedicated to a temple goddess and trapped then in a life of ritualized sexual abuse. I wonder if you can describe how that happens in the 21st century in even a nation like India. Mm. Well, just to back up a little bit on something you just said, you said it sounds a bit like a plot from a movie. So for anybody who saw the movie Lion that came out a couple of years ago, it's actually a true story about a Dalit boy who was born in India and, of course, ended up being adopted by an Australian family. But for those who are listening who saw the movie, if you can remember, at the very beginning, Saru's mother was a rock collector and that was what she did for her life and that's what he was being trained to do. Um, so that's just a really, really great illustration of what the life is like for many Dalit people, which is, of course, a bit different to the, what you've just asked me about the Joganese. But it is good to set a picture in people's minds of the kinds of things that Dalits would end up doing. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's a great movie and I highly recommend it. Um, so back to your question, you talked about the Jogany girls. So as I mentioned, the, joke, the Dalit girls would feel that on two levels that they're completely worthless. One, because they're Dalit and two, because they're, joke, because they're um, females. But there comes the time in the life of some of these girls where for various reasons they get identified to be dedicated to the temple goddess. So they might be as young as five or six. And on this particular day, they're actually made to feel like they're very special. So the village turns out there's a whole celebration that happens. The girl usually has no idea what's going to happen. They tie a necklace around her neck so that everybody is aware that she is now a Jogany and she's now officially married to the temple goddess. And she is then trapped in a life of ritualized sexual abuse of which she feels like there's no escape because... This is her destiny. This is her calling in life. Kate, this is, as you describe, a wedding ceremony. Uh, no ordinary wedding here. No bridegroom involved, in fact. In fact, the bride is marrying a goddess, not a man. And that, that just seems so outlandish to us. And in a day when here in Australia we're all very mindful of sexual abuse and religious sexual abuse, and that's all in the headlines and all those sorts of things. But uh, but this is almost beyond the wild imagination that you might have that this sort of happens today. Uh, so the idea of a wedding is that these young girls are married to a goddess. Yeah, that's that's correct. And 
Just to add to that, I don't know if you know, but in 2018, India was actually identified as the most dangerous place in the world for women. And when we think about other countries, you know, Afghanistan and Yemen and so on, it's quite extraordinary that an, a whole lot of metrics that were applied, India was identified as the most dangerous place today in the world for women. And these girls, I don't know that you mentioned an age, as I understand it, uh, very, very young girls from the age of five years of age, uh, they can go through this whole uh, process, a uh, wedding, being married to a goddess. Uh, five years of age, is that the, that the age that they typically are, uh, are uh, moved into this uh, dreadful experience? Um, it can be as young as five, it can be seven or eight, sometimes it can be 12. It really depends on the reason behind the dedication and there's a whole lot of reasoning around that. But yes, as young as five, they can be dedicated. Now, something works in your favour, Kate, when you're trying to free young girls from this uh, all-encompassing life destiny that they get when they're married to this goddess because actually it is illegal in India and has been since 1988 uh, to have this uh, this ritualized abuse, this sort of temple prostitution, that works in your favour because it gives you an opportunity to be able to uh, to remind village elders that that they don't have rights over these little girls. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Neil. The the thing is, yes, it was banned in 1988, but in many parts of India. That law isn't actually known, and so there's a lot of illiteracy in the villages and the rural areas, and so people don't actually know that it is illegal, and when they find out that it's been illegal for over 30 years, they're actually very surprised. But in, even in areas where it is known that it's illegal, it's very rarely enforced. Kate, let's focus on these girls for a few moments here and uh, we'll widen our conversation shortly, but uh, this is the uncomfortable thing to talk about. Uh, these little girls, as young as five years of age, and you said five or seven, dedicated to a goddess, and then they become the property of an older Hindu man. Uh, how does it how does it all work that uh, that they become the property because we, what we're talking about here is really a form of child slavery aren't we uh, take take us through what happens in the life typically of these young girls well after the dedication not too much happens not too much changes in her life and whatever it was that she was doing begging on the streets or working in the fields or something like that not too much changes but it's when she hits puberty she goes to the highest bidder for the night and after that, any man in the village knows that he can use her and abuse her any time he likes. Unlike a prostitute, they don't get paid for these services. And so whatever it is that she was doing before, whether it's you know rolling cigarettes for money or working in the field, as I said, she still does that just to earn some meagre amounts of money. But any time of day, day or night, in her parents' house, in the fields, anywhere a man feels that he wants to, he can just take her and use her and abuse her. And because she believes it's her destiny, she doesn't feel that she has the right ever to say no. How many young girls are trapped in this environment? I know it must be hard to ascertain exact numbers, but have you got any idea? Are there estimates of the girls uh, who are trapped in this uh, jogany experience? Uh, yes, now, so... First of all, there's similar practices that happen in other parts of India which are called different things, so I don't know the numbers and stats on those. 
because we've actually focused on this very specific practice. So it only happens in three states of India. And so what we did when we began our work was to do a survey in the field. And we've identified that there's approximately 100,000 Joganese at the moment. Now, of course, some people do know it's illegal, and so they would not necessarily tell the truth when we did the survey. And other people are illiterate, and so the stats can be a bit skewed, but we believe that there's somewhere in the vicinity of 100,000 of these girls. And we would know that where these things happen in villages, clearly there'll be significant poverty. Uh, There'll be the traditional beliefs of that religious system we're talking about, and we are talking about Hinduism, and uh, obviously other uh, village superstitions and such things like that. It makes, no doubt, uh, these sorts of cycles very hard to break. And, uh, and you would have got a few clues on how to actually get in and break those cycles, but, uh, but it is very difficult in these villages. Absolutely. So the first thing we did was actually bring a team of lawyers in, and because it was actually made illegal in 1988, we could work with the Indian government to actually frame laws that were prosecutable that we could then take into the villages. So with that in hand, we go to the village elders and explain, number one, it's illegal and has been for 30 years, uh, but number two, there's actually prosecutable laws around this now. So we bring them along on the journey to understand that there could be ramifications if they don't support what we're doing. So with that in hand, we can actually go to the Jokini women and explain, first of all, it's illegal and you don't have to say yes to men, but secondly, you've been abused for so long. We have a structure in place now, both with our team, but also with an understanding with the village elders that if people do abuse you, harass you, and, and harm you in any way, that there is a process that you can work through to get the help that you need. Kate, there's a sort of unwritten thing that seems to emerge and is part of conversations, especially when it comes to mission activity, that somehow or other you ought to just leave other people in their religious circumstances doing what they do and not have anything to do with influence in that way. Uh, Clearly, as a Christian, you've not been able to settle for that and really you're extending a hand of of help here, even though there's this religious connection to what these Joganis are are under. Uh, What are your thoughts for what drives... Uh, people in your organisation, Kate, because you are driven by some wonderful foundations for your own faith that wants to see the best for these young girls? Well, we believe in a God that um, whose heart breaks for those who live on the margins, for those who are just vulnerable and enslaved in any way. We can read from Genesis where God created man and he, he created man and woman in his own image and he created them to have dignity. And these women and girls have just had all that dignity stripped away. And, you know, all through the Bible, there's this thread from Genesis right through to Revelations of God's heart for justice and for mercy. And Jesus modeled it. He enacted it. He always focused on those on the margins, and he esteemed them in ways that were just completely foreign, even to the culture of his day. So there's just so much in Scripture that drives us and... You know, we just believe it's God's heart. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Kate is our guest on 2020 today. She is the CEO of the Dignity Freedom Network. And this is a organization that has a focus 
on what are known as Jogany Girls. And if you've missed the earlier part of our conversation, Jogany Girls, young girls dedicated to a temple goddess and trapped in a life of ritualised sexual abuse. And Kate, if we're talking about the plight of these young girls, I mean, the sorts of lifestyle that they are forced into, and we mentioned this earlier, it's like a form of sexual slavery, but what they're forced into has dramatic impact upon them for their whole lives. What sort of effects have you noticed and uh, about these young girls? Um, it's a great question, Neil. So as our team have been working with these women, some of the things that we've observed is that the stats are just appalling. So 93% of Joganese are illiterate. 57% of Joganese have attempted suicide. Uh, so many of them suffer from all sorts of forms of substance abuse to kind of drown the pain. They suffer from depression, obviously ill health. So many of them are HIV positive. They're 10 times more likely to die from HIV than other women in India economically vulnerable and the children of Joganese are also very marginalised because nobody actually knows who their father is and so they're considered illegitimate as well. So it's a it's a poverty cycle that's just self-perpetuating and it's just so incredible when you meet these women and hear their stories and just unpack the damage that has been done to them. It's just heartrending. And let's talk about parents for a few moments because if you're a parent of a little girl in these thousands of villages across India uh, and uh, perhaps it's uh, mostly refined to just some states in India but if you're a parent what would it would be that would make you want to even dedicate your child into this Jogini lifestyle? That's an excellent question Neil because again it's so absolutely foreign to us um, with our worldview so there's a number of different reasons. As we've already mentioned, um, Hinduism is obviously predominant here. And for many people, they believe in good luck and bad luck. And so if there have been things happening in a family that would be perceived as bad luck with ill health or death or losing jobs, they might feel that the gods are angry with them. So if they were to dedicate their daughter, it would actually break the bad luck and bring favour to the family. So that's one reason people do it. Another reason is the dowry system. If people don't have enough money for a dowry for their daughters, then they might typically dedicate their daughters because then they don't have to find a dowry. And it just saves space. So, again, it's just an incredible kind of sacrifice to think you've saved space, but actually you've put your daughter in this terrible position. And then another reason would be that in India, the wife or the girl that fiancé typically goes and lives with her husband's family and then they look after his parents as they age so if you've only got daughters then you're just thinking ahead you're thinking well who's going to care for me as I age and there aren't the kind of pension infrastructure that we appreciate so much here in Australia that is fairly non-existent in a lot of the villages so if you dedicate your daughter not only will she not leave you but also she's going to have children and so you've actually got a line of grandchildren who will care for you as you age so there's some of the reasons that people might dedicate their daughters and if you are a practicing jogany already um, and your children are deemed to be illegitimate if you've got little girls they will just typically follow in the mother's footsteps because it isn't considered that there's actually an alternative 
No alternative because you're at the bottom of the ladder. Uh, superstition, the dowry system, the idea of even social family uh, care and welfare as you grow old. We're just a minute and a half or so out from news and we'll develop in the next hour after the news uh, some of the things that happen when you're in a village and you actually, on uh, the ministry role that you have, Kate, uh, you're seeing these young girls set free from uh, this life of uh, prostitution, this sex slavery. Uh, just that's, give us a yes, little. That's correct. Give us a little insight into into how that happens. Uh, you, you must be story after story of young girls who are free from that. Absolutely. So that that's quite. Do you want me to do that now or after? The uh, you know, quick uh, quick little mention of it now because uh, this is something that uh, you're okay. seeing success, aren't you? That's right. And so we provide the women with health care. We provide them with economic empowerment we let them know that they're made in the image of god we let them know he has a purpose and a plan for his life um the little girls who are most at risk with the mother's permission come and live in our safe house and there they avail themselves of education and health care and a loving environment and a home um and it is just incredible to see these women coming out of the practice and actually having a hope and having their dignity restored and Kate, just to say that we're just using your first name today because uh, you are travelling uh, into India and things are getting a little tougher on the ground in India. There are some changes that are coming and there is a more Hindu nationalist focus that is coming in and making it much harder for any Christian organisations to work. Uh, this is a concern, isn't it, as things get a bit tougher in India? That's true, Neil. It's, it's actually not just... Christians. It's not that they're anti-Christian. It's also very difficult for Muslims and all sorts of minority groups in India at the moment, and um, it's just the reality of what's happening there. Now, we mentioned young girls dedicated to a temple goddess trapped in a life of ritualised sexual abuse, and this all sounds dreadfully bad, and of course it is. It's, it's just awful. It's sex slavery. But there's an issue here, and you're approaching this from the point of view of uh, it's a solvable problem. This is not something that can't be resolved. You're in there actively working and being successful in what you're doing. That's correct. That's, we just find it so exciting and so heartening to see the fantastic response that we've had to the program and how uh, so many lives are being changed and impacted. Okay, let's get to the sorts of things that uh, listeners today, and having heard uh, some of those earlier things we've been talking about, uh, some people saying, well, this is something I think I could really get on board with, and because you've certainly got some successes, and we'll talk through some of those success stories as well, uh, but of course in a conversation like this, uh, we do want to give ways that people can actually uh, be attached uh, to what you're doing and support what you're doing. Uh, what are you hoping that people will do in support of uh, your efforts to free these girls from sex slavery? Uh, so I think one of our key verses is Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, which talks about being a voice for those who have no voice. So we feel it's a real privilege to be a voice for these precious women and girls, and we would love to see other people come on board and likewise feel called to be a part of solving this and being a voice for these women and girls. So uh, there's heaps of ways people can support us. We have prayer meetings around Australia and We'd love to see more start, so if people want to know about where the prayer meetings are or would like to start one, that would be fantastic. We do a monthly 
prayer email update that we send out. And again, we just feel like we need to have so many people praying for us. So if people want to get on board with either of those two prayer initiatives, we'd love to hear from you. People can join our International Women's Day campaign. So the way that we actually work our project is it's not us that goes in and rescues girls and women. It's actually former Joganese who have come out of the practice, who have received all of the counselling and the health care and all of the empowerment that our teens in India provide. And they're the ones who go back into the village and they're the ones who connect with Joganese and help empower them to leave the system. And they're also the ones who hear upcoming dedications and work with the families to prevent the dedications. So every year it costs $250 to have one of these Jogany village leaders in one village. So at the moment we're working in 200 villages. Our goal is to work in 300 villages as soon as we can. And to do that, we need more sponsorship of these Jogany village leaders. So people can either sponsor one or they can run fundraisers this week. We thought with International Women's Day it would be a great catalyst to have people do anything that they'd like to do as a fundraiser, whether it's a Facebook campaign or some people are having lunches in their office, there's a morning tea happening, somebody's running on Saturday, there's a girl doing a bake sale at her school on Friday, there's another church that's running a swap, a clothes swap on Friday night. People can do anything that they have the imagination and creativity to do to help raise the profile this International Women's Day. And, of course, they can follow us on social media Facebook and Instagram and so on, and also learn more about what we're doing that way. You know, exciting to hear that you're working in 200 villages at this time, that your goal is that you'd like to be working in 300 villages as soon as possible and uh, let's say by the end of this year and uh, with some major initiatives, uh, you've got some plans to actually build to the point where you can be supporting uh, these uh, team leaders in each of these towns. But uh, from what I heard earlier, there are thousands of villages across... (laughs) Uh, various states in India and so really we are talking just uh, a small uh, percentage of those thousands of villages and no doubt you'd like to be able to make a bigger impact but uh, of course uh, the the haste by which you can make that impact will be always determined by how you can actually finance those things to happen so uh, no doubt you'd like to see more than 300 but 300 is the next goal. That's right. So we've identified that the practice is prevalent in around 3,000. So when we get to 300, we believe that will be approximately 10% of the affected area. In the villages we're working in, we're actually seeing the dedication stopping. We're seeing a change in the mindset of people. And so we actually believe we will hit a tipping point where exponentially the information that it's illegal, that there's prosecutions and so forth, will actually increase our reach far quicker than than just sort of doing it by addition. We think that multiplication will be the way that we can see this practice actually come to an end. And our goal is to see that happen within the next 10 years. Now, you mentioned that women come into safe houses that you've got established. No doubt that's another project uh, that you'd want to, in, in, you know, increase uh, over the times as well. Uh, but the stories of women who have been set free, uh, what sort of stories are there that come to mind? Um, so we meet some of these women, and when we meet them, they're just so broken. As I said, suffering from substance abuse and from addictions from low self-esteem and depression and when they 
start experiencing through our staff value for the first time in their lives because of course before they were joking they were already fairly despised it just changes them and to see them actually be empowered we, we help them start small businesses and they can actually start providing for their families so it's not all about handouts it's about providing dignity for them and so these women are starting to advocate themselves we've had some of them receive government recognition and awards publicly for their work in preventing dedications in their village. We've seen um, some of them actually rise to be invited to be on the local council, the local government at council level. And for these women who have come from a very illiterate and, and despised background, it's just incredible to see the dignity that they're ab- able to have as they can see the changes happening and they dream for their children as well. Before they had no dreams for their children and now they're starting to dream that their children can have education, that their children can break out of the poverty cycle and their children can actually know that they are also made in the image of God. Kate, this Christian influence that I can hear you articulate here, and I know you've got to be cautious uh, when you're on the ground in India how you talk about uh, this Christian influence, but these values of uh, educating people, uh, of introducing them to the idea of human dignity, and of course that's a part of the name of your organisation. Uh, these things are very much a part of our Christianity, and 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 uh, I imagine that there's somewhat surprise uh, when people treat them differently to their own culture. How do you how do you uh, identify? How do you describe the sort of you know the difference people experience when they're hearing of a Christian way of of, of life? Well, as as I said before, so they came from a whole understanding that they were worthless. And now all of a sudden they're being told that they have worth. And so when we're sharing with them, we don't start by trying to convince them that they're sinners and that they need to repent. We actually start from Genesis where we say to them, did you know that in Genesis our God says he made you in his image and he created you to have intrinsic value. In fact, he sent his son to die for you so that you could be reconciled to him and have a relationship with him and that he loves you. And so this just absolutely breaks them. This is just something that is beyond their comprehension that not only are they not despised, but they have value. And it really does set them free having this knowledge. So we're very careful not to proselytize. We're very careful to just love them, to pray for them and to just esteem them and to, yeah, keep telling them that, that we love them and that we love them. It's, there's a God who loves them and cares for them and, and he wants to help change their lives. It's a beautiful image of being able to approach people who have believed that they are worth less and to be exposed to the Christian open hand of support and help which demonstrates love and telling people that they are of great worth because they are created in the image and likeness of God. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hi Chris, welcome along. Uh, good day, Neil and guest. Yeah, you know, I just wanna ask where's the United Nations in all this uh the silence is deafening, and uh, perhaps uh, you guys could uh, engage Nikki Haley. Now, she stood up for Israel so uh, greatly in the United Nations, and I, I think Nikki Haley is of Indian origin, and perhaps even though she's retiring, she could be a good lobbyist for this cause. 
that's just all I want to say, yeah. Good suggestion, Chris. Uh, response yeah, from you, Kate. So, as I mentioned before, the practice was made illegal in 1988, and that was as a direct response to pressure from the United Nations. In India, there's also been a lot of changes in the sense that Dalits are given quotas for university and for different government jobs. And again, that was due to pressure from the United Nations. Not many Dalits have been able to take up those places through lack of education. So we actually, on a different note, have 104 schools around the country. And so we're actually being able to equip Dalit students to fulfil the quotas of university and government positions, which come as a direct response from pressure from the United Nations. So there definitely is, on the outer side, India is taking on board um, recommendations from the United Nations. However, that often doesn't trickle down into the villages. And so that's where we're working on the ground to actually take what has been put in place and bring that to bear on the ground so that it actually does meet the needs of those who are most vulnerable. But yes, we are always looking for ambassadors in high places who can be influential and help us in this way. So thanks, Chris. Great, great comments. Yes, thank you so much to Chris from Victoria. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316. And uh, yes, just affirming that uh, it is an outlawed practice. But as you say, Kate, it takes a long time for this sort of thing to trickle down into villages where people have not heard the news, don't have the same sort of access uh, to the news that they might have in the cities and in the villages. These things take a little bit of time to catch up. Kate, you mentioned that you've got a bunch of schools. Now, schools are important and particularly for the Dalit people, because as I understand it, uh, a child needs to have the father's name uh, required to access places in school. And so when you've got children here, they don't know who their father is. Uh, They're locked out, but not in your schools. Yes. So actually, uh, the schools typically are for Dalit children who aren't necessarily related to the Jogany issue. So that's why it was just a kind of aside. But We have addressed this issue in two different ways. So one is through advocacy again in India where we have taken it to the courts to have that law changed such that a Jogani can actually have her name on a child's birth papers which would then allow them access to the local school. Not one of our schools but one of the local schools whereas before they were unable to have the rights because they were deemed illegitimate. So that was a huge win. The only problem is of course that the discrimination that takes place even should the child go to the local school, that's still a problem. And so we came up with an idea of busing the children of Joganis to villages that are outside their village where nobody knows who they are. So we've purchased buses and the children of Joganis, the little girls and the little boys, get a fresh start in life at one of our Good Shepherd schools where they can actually avail themselves of English-based education with a Christian worldview but with a completely fresh start because nobody knows that their parent, that their mother is a Jogany. A completely fresh start. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Jack in Sunbury in Victoria. Hello, Jack. Welcome along. How do you do? Uh, happy Shrove Tuesday. And to you too. Thank you so much. What are your thoughts for our conversation, Jack? Well, I was just thinking because, you know, you talked about the Judeo-Christian not being like that, but unfortunately we were, I mean, in many ways, we still are, you know, the child child abuse and all that. But back um, not too long ago, uh, people uh, sold their children, um, or the boys, 
because they didn't have boys, uh, girls in the, well, in the Roman Catholic Church. And so they sold the children to be castrated. And so the boys wouldn't break. And the result of those boys, um, well, they grew to be giants and disfigured, but they had really nice voices, you know. And, and we did that in the name of God. But I don't think God was really in charge of doing something like that, you know. No, and uh, no doubt there are going to be isolated incidents you can choose and you can cherry-pick from thousands of years of history and uh, let's not defend at all where there have been errors of uh, judgment and errors of legislation over those times where there have been Christian uh, ways that uh, that have affected uh, people in this way. I think if we're talking contrast, though, when we're talking foundations, say, of a Judeo-Christian foundation which gives people value, and uh, we can also identify how this works, even with Australia's own Indigenous people, of how those values have, in fact, given to Indigenous people uh, that uh, value of human life, uh, which has been so important for them over the hundreds of years but of course we're talking thousands of years where this Judeo-Christian foundation makes a difference and causes human flourishing because people are given value but uh, let's get a a thought or two perhaps from Kate Uh, Jack's on a slightly different uh, tangent there but uh, what are your thoughts for uh, for his response to our conversation oh absolutely I think that the Christian church has a lot to apologise for, to to change and to recognise that there are issues and that we need to deal with them. And we don't want to hide some of these terrible things that have happened. We want them to be addressed. And I just feel that in a country like Australia, it's, it's great to see that these things are being brought out into the open. In India, that's often not the case where these things remain hidden. And due to illiteracy and due to just so many practices that are happening the women and the girls don't have the advocacy and they don't have to support the infrastructure around them to avail themselves of help. And so I think that's where we we can play a part, is actually bridging that. Okay, thank you so much to Jack from Sunbury for your call. And talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. One of those things, though, that holds to these young women Kate, is the stigma that's attached to having been a Jogany. Uh, how does that sort of stigma get broken? Is there? Is it possible to break it? Is it possible for it uh, to at all uh, to to be uh, uh, allayed in, in any way? What are your thoughts? So a lot of the Jogany women, when we connect with them and they find out that it's been illegal for all these years and not only that, it's the ultimate betrayal because parents have put them into this practice, a lot of them are very, very angry, which is completely understandable. Um, And so there's a lot of dealing with that when we're talking with them and empowering them and praying with them. For some of them, they actually come through that and they actually discover that there is a God who loves them and they actually do incite Jesus into their lives. And for those ones, you can see such a difference where they've forgiven their parents, forgiven the perpetrators, and they just have such a tangible relationship with God that is just so humbling to see. Um, we've even been able to see another big change is that um, the Jogany women aren't allowed to get married because it's already considered that they are married. But we've seen some of our Jogany women who have left the practice 
actually be able to get married in the proper sense of being married. And that's just so precious to see the healing that's happened and to see that they can actually move on and put all of that behind them and start a fresh life with uh, with a husband and then having children. So there's various ways that we're seeing incredible transformation happening. We won't be able to take any more calls. Uh, time is now short. Just coming back to how people can be supporters of this wonderful ministry that you are leading, Kate. The website is dfn.org.au, Dignity Freedom Network. Uh, you mentioned earlier you want people to pray. You also want people to give because uh, you've got some goals. Uh, there is something like $250 a year uh, can actually meet the needs of a leader, a Jogany village leader, and you want to see your 200 villages increase to 300. Uh, this is something that's no doubt when people hear of the need, and it's very uh, you know easily met in some sense. Uh, but of course, you need to meet more and more village uh, uh, needs here. Uh, what's your encourage encouragement for people to actually uh, perhaps make contact with you today? Yes, so you can jump on Facebook as I said. You can message us there. We have an email address, info at dfn.org.au. We love to speak at churches, at ladies' conferences, anywhere we can. We're actually bringing out some of our graduates later in the year, so we'll be having a series of dinners around the country. If you'd love to know more about where they're happening or can you help organise them or help us in any way, we'd love to hear from you. And maybe even just through this time, you've thought of other ideas of how you might be able to help. If there's anything you'd like to talk about or chat about or connect with us we'd just love to hear from you it's a solvable issue and what we're hearing about is that practical hands and feet of the christian gospel at work and in another nation in the nation of india thousands of villages are still not reached by the good work that kate is doing in the dignity freedom network that website address dfn.org.au kate always appreciate your insights into this and thanks so much for an update today on how things are going and no doubt we'll get a chance to talk again before too long kate thanks for being with us on 2020 Thanks so much, Neil. I really appreciate your support. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.